Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me, Michael Adams, in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders past and present. It's mid-morning on Sunday the 29th of September 1940 and while spring has officially sprung on the east coast of Australia, today Mother Nature is refusing to play along. It's wild and wet across New South Wales. Up in Sydney, winds are cyclonic and at Mascot Aerodrome, they rip roofing from the Australian National Airways hangar. Down in the southwest of the state, in the Riverina, conditions are less severe, but it's still squally and raining. But for the RAAF trainees at the number two service flying training school at Forest Hill outside Wagga Wagga, this is just another day up in the air. These student pilots have to be able to fly in fair weather and foul, by day and by night, in any conditions in which they might have to fight. After all, a bit of Riverina rain and wind is nothing compared with the rain, wind, fog, ice and snow they might face in England when they join RAF bomber crews to fly missions against Germany. There's a new urgency to the war because this month it's entered a horrific phase like something out of the worst nightmares of science fiction writer H.G. Wells. The Nazis have unleashed an aerial bombing blitzkrieg campaign. Known simply now as the Blitz, it's terrorising London and other English cities. In sunlight and in darkness, despite the best efforts of the RAF pilots, civilians are being hammered. Day after day, Night after night, thousands have died, and many more thousands have been terribly injured. Just today, the Sunday Sun has a front-page photo of a rubble-strewn London street flanked by shattered buildings, firemen in the foreground of the picture directing a hose on smouldering ruins. The headline reads, Onslaught on Heart of Empire. In this edition, there's another full page inside of ghastly photos. These include a midsummer evening sky over St. Paul's Cathedral that's painted with the streaks of plane exhausts. A double-decker bus so shredded by a blast it's difficult to believe anyone survived. A bomb crater right outside Buckingham Palace. The Docklands burning out of control, a church reduced to bricks and matchsticks and, most terribly, most poignantly, a collapsed section of a children's hospital. Captions include Streets of Death and Air Savagery Strikes London. 
but there are other defiant captions and headlines, including London, battered but unconquerable, and Britons, not daunted. While the RAAF pilot trainees at Wagga are yet to join the war, they have also suffered front-page losses. In the past month, two separate crashes have killed four young men. But, like Londoners, they have to keep calm and carry on. So, this Sunday morning, four young men in two Avro Anson bombers are about to take off on a reconnaissance training mission. They too are doomed to crash. But the circumstances will be so extraordinary and the sequence of events so courageous and miraculous that by this time tomorrow, those four men will be on front pages all over Australia and soon after in newspapers, radio bulletins and newsreels all over the world. But the trainee pilot who will be first among equals, the man of the moment, is leading aircraftsman Leonard Graham Fuller. I'm Michael Adams, this is Forgotten Australia, and you're listening to RAAF hero Len Fuller, Part 2, The Mid-Air Miracle. Part 3, Blood Moon and the Setting of the Sun, will be released on the 6th of November. But if you're an Apple or Patreon supporter, you can hear it right now, ad-free. Links are in your show notes. Ten days before that Sunday, the 19th of September 1940, LAC Len Fuller completed his intermediate training and was given four days leave. How he spent this leisure time is not known. What's most likely is he took the train up to Sydney to see his parents at Bondi. Also, his girlfriend, Thelma Cockrell, a spunky 18-year-old who lived nearby. If Len and Thelma were like the bulk of young people, then music and movies were their main form of entertainment. 1940 had witnessed the rise of Glenn Miller, his orchestra's jitterbug music all the rage in America and increasingly being played on radio in Australia. Len and Thelma may have listened to him. What's a surer bet is that they sometimes tuned in to wireless broadcasts from London that were being made by the British film actor Leslie Howard. Leslie Howard was a vital player in Allied propaganda. He'd recently started a show called Britain Speaks for the BBC shortwave service. Via his radio microphone, he was bringing the Blitz to the world. This was perhaps not the sort of courage you'd expect from Leslie Howard if you only judged him by his character, Ashley Wilkes, in Gone with the Wind which in September of 1940 was still on its stupendous first run in Australian cinemas. Leslie Howard had been the cad in that movie, with Clark Gable the epitome of manliness. Off-screen too, Clark was a lucky devil because he was married to Carol Lombard. And that blonde beauty's colour photo had just appeared in the pictorial section of Sydney's Sunday Telegraph during Len Fuller's four-day furlough. So, odds are, that picture of Carol Lombard got pinned up alongside other Hollywood honeys on the walls at the Forest Hill RAAF Training School. Glenn Miller, Leslie Howard, Carol Lombard. Three hugely popular entertainers who were leading lights in wartime morale boosting. I mention them specifically because of the sacrifice that each made. Carol Lombard was killed in January 1942 while returning from a war bond tour when her plane crashed in Nevada. Leslie Howard's plane was shot down by the Germans en route from Lisbon to Bristol in June 1943. Army Major Glenn Miller's aircraft disappeared over the English Channel in December 1944 while he was on his way to entertain Allied troops in Europe. Their fates went to show that it didn't matter who you were during World War II. Every time you took to the air, there was no guarantee you'd come back. Every time you went up, it was a roll of the dice. By the time Len Fuller returned from his leave, he and the other trainee pilots from the first air scheme intake had been awarded their flying badges. There was no pomp or ceremony about this. 
As a big Sunday Telegraph article headlined, Wings Over Wagga, would tell readers, quote, There is none of the peacetime ceremony about awarding wings these days. The award is announced in the routine orders of the day on notice boards in the school. Len and his mates simply went to the equipment store and got their wings handed to them by a sergeant. The lads were now two-thirds of the way to being war pilots. 44 had started, one had died, and a few had been scrubbed because they weren't good enough. So there was about 38 of them left. For these men now came eight weeks of advanced training, learning how to use their planes as weapons. That Sunday Telegraph article takes us into this part of the course at this time. Quote, The trainee has to learn to use plane guns, the two synchronised front guns and thousand rounds a minute gas-operated Vickers gun which swivels in the back cockpit of the bomber. Camera guns which take pictures of the target are used instead of offensive weapons. He fires from his plane at targets in the air and on the ground and must register 70% hits to satisfy the instructors. Dive, high-precision and low-level bombing are practised with dummy bombs filled with stannic chloride which explodes with realistic smoke. For realism, mimic wars between flights of bombers and fighters are staged. The bombers are sent to a point 100 miles out with instructions to bomb the aerodrome, though they actually take photographs. The fighter's job is to stop the bombers getting within effective distances of the drone. If the fighters sight the bombers, they fire off smoke signals. Umpires flying above the formations award marks. The ATS, which was advanced training students, get as much blind flying as can be put into them, including actual night and cloud flying, for visibility will not be as good abroad as it is at Wagga. This article quoted their squadron leader commander, who said, The ATS must fly aircraft as easily as riding a bicycle. On Sunday the 29th of September, after morning service, LAC Len Fuller was to pilot a grey Avro Anson on a reconnaissance training mission. His route would take the plane southwest to Koroa, back north to Narandra, and then across east back to Wagga. This three-pointed trip was only 250 miles or so. Len would be back by lunch. Len was teamed with observer Ian Sinclair. He was 26 years old. Ian had been born at Glen Innes, educated at King's School in Parramatta and been a grazier at Collymongol before enlisting. The other Aggie in the formation that morning was Silver. It was piloted by Jack Hewson. From Newcastle, Jack had just turned 19 and he'd set aside his career as an advertising draftsman to serve in the Air Force. His observer was Hugh Fraser, a 27-year-old accountant from Melbourne. In an episode that discusses chance, it would be remiss of me not to draw attention to the coincidence that all four trainees in those two Aggies had surnames in common with Australian conservative politicians. Len's surnamesake was New South Wales Premier George Fuller. Hughes was Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser. Jacks was Federal Liberal Opposition Leader John Hewson, and Ian had the same first and last name as National Party Leader Ian Sinclair. As a bonus, Ian Sinclair's middle name was Menzies. That morning, Len Fuller and Ian Sinclair climbed up into their Aggie, which stood 14 feet up off the runway. The twin-engine bomber was 42 feet long with a wingspan of 57 feet. A photo from this time held by the Australian War Museum is titled The Interior of an Avro Anson and it gives us a good look at an Aggie cockpit. Len Fuller sat on the left. Ian was on his right. They were surrounded by a steel framework enclosed in plexiglass. This design offered good lateral and upper visibility but the controls and nose of the plane obscured the airspace directly in front and below the aircraft. A little before 10.30, they took off. An Aggie had a cruising speed of 159 miles per hour. Len and Jack's aircraft soon had the flatness of the Riverina spread out beneath them. They flew over pastoral land and clumps of bush. 
over farmhouses and past small towns like The Rock and Kalkan. Straight as the crow flies, it was 80 miles from Wagga Wagga to Korowa, where they'd turn north for Narandra. At around 10.45, they were three quarters of the way to Korowa, approaching the airspace directly over the little town of Brocklesby. On the ground, people heard the Aggies roaring their way. Outside the Presbyterian Church, Reverend Mr. J. Thompson and members of his flock gazed into the heavens, and they beheld a strange sight. In the backyard of the Brocklesby pub, hotelier Mr. Egan looked up and saw the same. The Aggies were about 3,000 feet up, but there was barely any sky between them. The silver one was slightly ahead and below the grey one. They were so close it looked like they were dogfighting. 3,000 feet up, in his Aggie cockpit, Len Fuller couldn't see Jack Hewson's plane. Not to port, not to starboard, not above. It was like it was just gone. What Len and Ian Sinclair couldn't imagine was that Jack Hewson's Aggie was perfectly concealed in the blind spot created by the nose of their plane. But looking around, all they saw was empty sky. A second later, for whatever reason, a nudge or a pull on a stick, wind pushing up or pushing down, Len's Aggie dipped or Jack's Aggie rose. Just a few feet, but it was enough. Everything happened in a terrifying split second. Impact, a shuddering, grinding crunch, a shower of sparks and smoke. The bump threw Len Fuller up hard against his safety belt, and his ears rang with the deafening bang-bang-bang of his roaring propellers cutting into the lower plane. On the ground, Mr. Egan saw the planes collide as they flashed over. Then, a spear was hurtling down towards him in his hotel backyard. This was the Lower Aggies aerial. Mr. Egan dodged behind a tree and avoided being killed by this debris. Elsewhere in Brocklesby, gasps rose up as glass and metal showered down. The grey plane had come down hard on top of the silver one. What was going to come next was inevitable. The townspeople were going to see the plane spin apart, go to pieces as they spiralled and hit the ground in balls of fire on the outskirts of town. Unless the crew could bail out fast, this was going to be the latest tragedy involving Avro Anson's. In his cockpit, shot clearing just a little, Len Fuller realised that his Aggie was in one piece and still flying level. Incredibly, so was Jack Hewson's plane. Len knew this because he could now see it, right there below his cockpit window. His plane was directly on top of it. His Aggie had landed on the other Aggie. Len's plane had all but crushed Jack and Hugh's cockpit. Len's port propeller had also done damage to that part of the lower plane. Meanwhile, Len's starboard propeller blade was embedded firmly in the lower Aggie's starboard engine casing. The two planes were fused, at least for the moment. Yet Len's engines were dead. His plane was without power. So how were they still flying? Then he realised, both of the lower Aggie's engines were still firing, and its propellers were still spinning in a blur. Yet that wouldn't have counted for anything if not for something equally as incredible. The two Aggies' wings and fuselages were almost perfectly aligned. With weight evenly distributed around a shared centre of gravity, the two planes were stable, at least for the moment. But any shift, any loss of power might destroy that balance, ripping the Aggies apart and sending them both to their doom. Len Fuller, in the past few seconds, had been on the receiving end of the worst and the best of luck. Luck would continue to play its part, dicing with death luck, but also luck as defined by Seneca, in which Len Fuller's lifelong preparation intersected with a one-in-a-million opportunity to stay alive. As amazing as anything else was the fact that Len Fuller was all right. He was uninjured, and so was Ian Sinclair. But what of Jack Hewson and Hugh Fraser? Len peered down from his side cockpit window. 
the other Aggie's cabin was shattered. There was no sign of life. But inside that wreckage, Jack Hewson and Hugh Fraser were alive. Not only alive, but they hadn't suffered any life-threatening injuries. Jack Hewson hadn't been wearing his safety belt and had been thrown to the floor by the impact. He'd suffered a minor back injury when the propeller had chopped into the airframe beside him and his vertebrae had been chipped by flying debris. Other than that, he was okay. Hugh Fraser didn't have a scratch. That was stunning enough. Then they realised their Aggie was still under full power and that Len Fuller's plane was hitching a ride on top of them. Jack Hewson struggled into his Dominion parachute. So did Hugh Fraser. These Australian-made parachutes had never been tested in a real-life compulsory bailout. Now it looked like they were going to be. Hugh Fraser went back inside the plane to take a bearing, but Jack Hewson knew whatever his observer observed wasn't going to make a lick of difference. They were losing altitude, and they'd only been up 3,000 feet in the first place. Jack yelled at Hugh to bail out, the observer didn't need to be told twice. Unseen by Len and Ian in the upper Aggie, Hugh Fraser bailed. Inside his shattered cockpit, Jack Hewson knew that he had to give the planes the best chance of staying aloft for as long as possible. So, with superb presence of mind, he opened his throttle wide and he pulled back and locked his stick. Above him, Len had realised he could still operate his Aggie's flaps and delirians. That meant he could still exercise control over this freak dual aircraft. But with the lower plane's engines losing power, it was sluggish beyond belief. Len also realised if he bailed out, he'd leave the planes without any control. There was no telling where they might come down in a ball of flame. Maybe it'd be in Brocklesby and they'd kill people. Len had to hold on. He had to try to land this thing. But the odds were terrible. Whatever was going to happen, Ian Sinclair didn't need to be there for it. Ian couldn't help. Len ordered him to jump. Ian yelled, What about you? He threw Len a Dominion parachute. Len said, No, I'm staying on. Get going. Ian Sinclair bailed. On the ground, farmers having seen one man jump from the lower plane, now saw another drop from the upper Aggie. At the controls, Len Fuller was relieved when he saw Jack Hewson crawl from the wrecked cockpit beneath him. Jack Hewson seemed unhurt. Len leant out of his window and, unable to be heard above the roar of the engines and the wind, he gave Jack Hewson the A-OK sign, forefinger to thumb. Good luck. Jack Hewson edged off the wing and slid into the slipstream. Once he was clear of the planes, about 1,500 feet from the ground, he pulled the ripcord on his Dominion parachute. Alone now, Len Fuller and the Aggies lurched through the sky. As the lower plane's engines slowed, the aircraft became ever harder to handle. Len looked for a paddock to land in. This was going to have to be like the earliest days of his infancy in Cootamundra, when aviators came down in their biplanes and bumped across farmers' properties, hoping they didn't hit anything bigger than a thistle. If Len hit a log, like the Hudson had in Canberra, it was game over. He saw a likely paddock a few miles up ahead, but the lower plane's engines were dying and he wouldn't make it that far. Len spotted another field, it was closer, but it wasn't dead ahead. To reach it, he'd have to turn. Any such movement might prise the planes apart. When Len tilted his stick, the Aggie stayed stuck and lumbered obediently to starboard. But now he had to turn to port to approach the paddock. Len did. The planes remained as one and obeyed. Luck? Or did Len just have the right touch? Either way, he was now 500 feet off the dirt. The lower engines were idling. The Aggies didn't glide so much as sink. Len had to level off sooner than usual if he was going to land and not crash. Now, another hard-in-mouth moment. Len pulled back on the stick, or he tried to, 
It didn't move. Len planted his feet hard on the rudder bar. He heaved back with everything he had until he was almost standing. The stick moved, the planes levelled, and now they glided. Ten or twenty feet up, the Aggies stalled. Down they went. Len came in not with a crash or a thud. Unbeknown to him, the lower Aggie's wheels were partially exposed, offering an additional buffer, so the lower plane hit with a thump and a whoosh. Len and his Aggie slid about 200 yards, veering just a little to the left before they came to a stop. Two planes, in one piece, with a single pilot. A near-perfect emergency landing. Len Fuller's direct account to the Sun newspaper has been closely followed in the description you've just heard. With droll humour, he'd say that his Aggies had lumped through the air like a couple of bricks and then glided about as well as an elephant. More seriously, Len said of the moment after the planes came to rest, quote, Then I hopped out. I just heaved a huge sigh of relief, and it was a very large sigh, I can tell you. Brocklesby townsfolk arrived in cars. Locals were deeply impressed at this hero pilot's main concern. What had happened to his mates, Ian Sinclair, Jack Hewson, and Hugh Fraser? Where were they? How were they? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Just before we continue, I'm delighted to announce that the next Forgotten Australia Book Club will celebrate 10 years of Gert. Of course, I'm talking about author David Hunt's trilogy of hilarious best-selling books about Australian history. They're called Gert, True Gert, and Gert Nation. All three Gerts are available wherever good books are sold, and in all formats, paperback, ebook, and audio. So if you haven't already, give the Gerts a read or listen, and send your questions through for David Hunt, who'll be joining me for a chat about all things Gerty. If you want to be old school, you can email your questions to ForgottenAustraliaPodcast at gmail.com. But if you want to get down with the new tech and have more fun, take a minute to record a question with your phone or computer via speakpipe.com forward slash Forgotten Australia. It sounds very cyber, but Speakpipe is dead easy to use. You say your piece, click a button, and the audio file comes straight to me and then I can play your question for David during the book club episode. Those email and speak pipe addresses are in your show notes. Get your questions in by the 15th of November if you want to be part of the episode. Okay, on with Len Fuller's story. Brocklesby farmer Alf Green, whose property was two miles from where Len had landed the Aggies, had seen the planes collide and become fused in mid-air. Alf had watched the air crew bail out. One, two, three. And one, two, three. For the first time in a life and death emergency, those new Dominion parachutes had opened and billowed up perfectly. Alf ran half a mile to where one airman was drifting down. This was trainee pilot Jack Hewson with his back injury, but otherwise he was all right. One of the observers came down in Brocklesby Township, while another landed in a paddock a couple of miles away. Ian Sinclair and Hugh Fraser were also as good as gold, unhurt. Four men had been saved. That seven serious Aggie crashes since April 1938 had left 27 of 28 crew dead made this seem like even more of a miracle. Further, both of these Aggies were salvageable, and they'd fly again after relatively minor repairs. 
Len Fuller's courage hadn't just saved his life and given his mates the best chance to bail out and save theirs, he'd also saved the Commonwealth Government two planes worth tens of thousands of pounds. When the RAAF was first told that one pilot had landed two planes that had been joined together in a mid-air collision, they didn't believe it. They thought it was some sort of joke. When they realised it was true, they sent their rapid response investigation team, the little unit that had had the sad duty of attending previous fatal crashes. It was headed by the RAAF's Inspector of Air Accidents, Group Captain Arthur Spud Murphy. He had with him his deputy, Henry Winnicky, barrister and future governor of Victoria. Spud and Henry had hopped into a Vega Gull plane with a pilot named Neil at the controls and they took off in a rush from Melbourne and headed for Brocklesby. In Henry Winnicky's biography, Above Renown, written by Robert Coleman, we read, quote, Soon after they passed over Albury, Winnicky looked down at the port side and there, on the ground, near an isolated farmhouse, was what appeared to be a very large biplane. There it is, he said. Neil put the Vega gull down beside the indecently joined Aggies and they scrambled out. Now, Robert Coleman wrote, they saw the man who'd pulled off this miracle landing. Quote, Fuller, who had ascertained that his mates were all right, was standing alone beside the grounded machines. Fuller came to attention and saluted as the officers walked up. What happened, son? Murphy asked. Fuller explained. Then Murphy asked him a few more questions and Fuller said, Well, sir, I did everything we've been told to do in a forced landing. Land as close as possible to habitation or a farmhouse and, if possible, land into the wind. I did all that. There's the farmhouse and I did a couple of circuits and landed into the wind. She was pretty heavy on the controls, though. That all sounded jolly good, but Above Renown was written nearly 50 years later. We find a far more immediate and conflicting account in the pages of the Murrumbidgee Irrigator newspaper. This publication reported that an aircraftsman named D.A. McGraw, who hailed from Leeton and was part of the response team that had been rushed down from Wagga, was amused because, quote, the first officer to see the young pilot gave him a thorough dressing down. In Len, the Air Force had the opportunity to present their young trainees as cool-headed and lion-hearted. But could the RAAF and their political master, Air Minister Arthur Fadden, actually look beyond themselves to see the mid-air miracle with the same wonder, enthusiasm and excitement of ordinary Australians? One Brockleby eyewitness, who was a returned soldier, would say, It was the most astounding thing I have ever seen, and I have watched some pretty hectic dogfights during the last war. I've never seen such a magnificent display of courage. If what happened today is a sample of the skill and spirit of the RAAF, no enemy will have a chance in aerial combat with our men. This was the sort of sentiment that would go perfectly on a recruiting poster. Jack Hewson was taken to a hospital in Aubrey. It was there, by chance, that rookie Border Morning Mail journalist and future Henry Winnicke biographer, Robert Coleman, then just 18 years old, was in a bed recovering from an appendix operation. He'd later give varying, contradictory accounts of exactly who he spoke to. In one newspaper report, published in 1971, he said it was Len Fuller. In Above Renown, he said it was Jack Hewson. Maybe it was both. In any case, Robert Coleman got the gist and, though he was too sick to file the story himself, he alerted the Border Morning Mail's editor, and he sped a reporter and a photographer to the scene. Newsreel cameramen would also get there. But the Border Morning Mail was first. That evening, the editor faced an almighty fight with the Air Force brass over his plan to publish a photo of the double-decker planes. This debate would rage into the early hours before the newspaper man got his permission. The Border Morning Mail's front page headline a few hours later read, A most amazing aerial feat performed over Brocklesby. Pilot lands with two machines. Crews bail out. One man slightly injured. 
That first story did not quote Len Fuller or Jack Hewson. It relied on Brocklesby witnesses. Whatever they said, the single image told the story far better. The front page picture of the fused Aggies was captioned, The Brocklesby Miracle. That photo would be flashed around the world. When the basics of the story went out on the news wires, the planes were described as locked together in pickerback fashion. Pickerback was then in more common use than the variation piggyback. So Len was soon nicknamed Pickerback Fuller. A wave of congratulatory telegrams started arriving for Pickerback Fuller, and the phone was ringing off the hook with people who wanted to have a chat. One of the callers was Len's mum, Daisy, on the blower from their family home in Bondi. Len told her he was all right, and he didn't say too much more. He said he'd tell her everything next time he saw her. By now, LAC Leonard Graham Fuller was five months into his pilot training. First at Mascot, then at Wagga, he'd been pretty busy. He'd been learning how to fly in theory and practice, taking planes up by day and by night, pushing the machines and himself to the very limit. Len Fuller had also recently had four comrades crash and burn. He'd just saved himself and three mates from suffering the same fate. All of this was a lot for a young bloke. So, on that Sunday and Monday, with his adrenaline still pumping, while the mid-air moments were still playing and replaying in his mind, while disbelief was still on its way to becoming belief, exactly how much mental energy did Len Fuller assign to Airboard Order N3245C? This was the regulation that prohibited personnel from talking to the press without authorization. Had Len Fuller even read it, given the amount of other classroom reading that he had to do, reading, you know, about guns, bombs, engines, airframes, and everything else involved in fighting a war in the air. Among Len's telephone callers were reporters from the Sydney tabloids The Sun and Daily Telegraph. Had Len's superiors actually ordered him not to speak to them? No, because if they had, his disobeying that direct order would be noted in his RAAF file at the National Archives of Australia. What's far more probable is that it wasn't until after the newspaper men called that Len was told to zip it, and this was why he'd been so reticent when speaking to his mother. The Sun headlined him on Monday afternoon as Pupil is Pride of the RAAF. The next day, The Sun ran his verbatim account from the interview they'd done. Len was described as, quote, hero of one of the most amazing episodes in the history of aviation. This lengthy article gave Len's exclusive point of view on the flight, the collision, the bailouts, his decision to stay with the planes, and how he'd gone about landing them. Isolate any part of Len's story, and you had stirring stuff that would send sons of Anzac scrambling for the RAAF recruitment officers. Example, quote, I thought I might have just a chance to get them down in one piece. I thought if I gave up and bailed out, they'd crash in Brocklesby and probably kill several people. So I decided to give it a go. I knew I had a slight chance. Len's reflections on the incident were just as inspiring. He told the son that during the crisis, he'd been able to blank out the danger. Quote, I knew it was there, but I didn't dare let myself think of it. So would he do it again? Quote, Yes, in the same circumstances, I'd try it again. Apart from saving lives below, it was worth a chance to save two valuable planes. Len also wanted to pay tribute to his comrades. Quote, It takes a lot of courage to bail out, and they did it promptly. I was pretty glad when I heard they were safe. This wasn't just lip service. They had shown plenty of guts, jumping quickly, using parachutes that had never been tested in a real-life emergency. Representatives of the Sun newspaper had also visited Len's mother in the family home. They snapped her picture as she gazed lovingly at a framed photo of her Len in his uniform. 
Daisy Fuller, who 20 years ago had gone up in a stunt flight in a biplane with a Great War aviator and absolutely loved it, now said of her boy, I'm terribly thrilled and excited. I might have known that Len would do a brilliant thing like that. A mum through and through, Daisy told the paper that Len was neat and tidy and helpful, a perfect son, modest and laconic too. When she'd phoned him and asked how he felt when the planes were coming down, Len had replied, Oh, all right, Mum. She explained, He said he felt 100% and would tell me the rest when he saw me. He seemed very quiet, but he never talked much about himself. Daisy continued, Len's action in sticking by the two planes after the collision was not bravado. It was just that he was cool-headed. He was always that way, and he'll never lose his head. He's been in all sorts of jams, and he always gets out by cool thinking. As an example, Daisy told of how Len, when he was a driving instructor in Sydney, had had a woman pupil who'd become really flustered in a busy traffic jam. What'll I do? What'll I do? This woman had screamed at Len. Keep your head. That was what he'd said. Keep your head. It wasn't bad advice for any aspiring aviator. And again, it was the sort of thing that the RAAF could have put on a recruiting poster beside a picture of Len and those fused Aggies. While Len had kept his head, he also knew that the odds against him had been astronomical. Speaking to the Daily Telegraph, he said, I suppose I must consider myself one of the luckiest flyers ever. Aviation experts held exactly the same view. Len Fuller had been lucky to the point of impossibility. William Hart, holder of Australia's first pilot's license, having made his first flight back in 1911, said that the pickerback landing was the most amazing incident in aviation during the last 30 years. This flying legend said, quote, I would never have believed it possible. An unnamed RAAF officer agreed. How the machines maintained the centre of gravity is a miracle. Had that not happened, no power on earth could have controlled them. A flying boat captain held the same view. Quote, Actually, it sounds impossible. It is a remarkable thing in the first place, and was even more remarkable because a pupil pilot did the trick. It is the kind of thing that will be talked about for years by pilots all over the world, and will just not be believed by a lot of them. But all they had to do was look at the photos. News bulletins of most of the overseas broadcasting stations, including the BBC and stations at San Francisco, Manila and Java, described the mid-air miracle in detail, pointing out, as Wagga Wagga's daily advertiser reported, quote, that the incident had no parallel in the history of aviation. The mid-air miracle was good news amid a lot of bad news. It appeared on Australian front pages, surrounded by accounts and photos of the latest long night of blitz bombing. Another 10 RAF pilots had died, and there'd been a lot more civilian casualties. The contrast might have been starkest on the Sun's front page. Right beneath the article about Len's delighted mum was a little blurb about Australian casualties during the latest night of the Blitz. It began, quote, Mr. C.C. Illingworth, a member of the Australia House staff, was killed by a bomb while he was cycling to work on a tandem with his wife. She was saved by her husband, who threw himself over her. Killed on a bike in a freak occurrence while commuting to work. Readers had to shake their heads at the number of ways you could die in this bloody war. While The Sun in Sydney had featured Len's mum, the Herald in Cootamundra was thrilled to recall that Len was the Cooterborn son of their beloved former councillor, Bill Fuller. The paper reminded readers of old Bill's proud service to his country, as first to fight in New Guinea in the last war, and his service to Cooter, forgiving at the aerodrome, now being used to train RAAF observers. The Cooter Herald also informed readers that Len had even been named for an uncle who'd been a Great War aviator who'd made the ultimate sacrifice. The newspaper declared, 
the spirit of adventure is in the fuller blood. That would soon go triple because Len's older brother Nigel was to be called up for the RAAF, while younger brother Keith was to join the AIF. By chance, Len Fuller had shared those start of October front pages across Australia with another RAAF pilot who, thanks to a Dominion parachute, had just survived a potentially fatal mishap. This was 23-year-old pilot officer Lionel Grenville Webber, who joined the RAAF as an air cadet in February 1940. Lionel's escape was dramatic, but the aftermath also puts Len's story into better context. Back in July, pilot officer Lionel Webber had first made the newspapers when he crash-landed a plane in Victoria and walked away with only a cut lip. Three months later, on the 1st of October, the day after Len Fuller's pickerback landing, Lionel's aircraft was one of a formation of three that flew north from Point Cook in Victoria. His plane had no radio, he'd never flown over New South Wales before, and he'd been given no maps. We know this because he told the newspapers directly. The Sydney Morning Herald quoted Lionel about what had happened. When we reached the Blue Mountains, we ran into snow, sleet and heavy cloud. I momentarily lost sight of the flight leader and then caught a glimpse of him again. I thought I saw him signal me to make a turn and I started to follow him again. I then lost him again. Now and again, I could see the tops of the ridges. I realized the risk of colliding with either of the other two machines in the flight. Lionel went on. I made a couple of circuits and then suddenly I saw a ridge ahead. I was well below its top. I pulled the stick back and started to climb, but after a few seconds, the machine went into a spin and then into a dive. The cloud was very thick. All the time there was in my mind the risk of colliding with my friends. The Sun also had Lionel's story in detail. Quote, I tried everything I knew to pull her out, but it was useless. I began to feel desperate. My speed indicator showed that I was diving at 300 miles an hour and losing height rapidly. There was only one thing left for me to do, to get out. Lionel continued, I had never made a parachute jump before, but I didn't give it a thought. The rush of wind almost knocked me back, but I managed to leap. I felt snow splattering into my face and I pulled the ripcord. The parachute opened and I began floating towards a forest. Lionel's plane slammed into a megalong valley ridge. The explosion was enormous, heard all the way up in Katoomba, and the blast scattered wreckage over half a mile. As the Sydney Morning Herald reported of Lionel, quote, He came down on the branch of a tree about 14 feet from the ground, unbuckled the harness of the parachute, climbed down the trunk and walked to a farmhouse, from which he calmly reported the crash. There were distinct similarities and distinct differences in the cases of Len Fuller and Lionel Webber. Both pilots had been confronted with circumstances beyond their control. They'd acted quickly and they'd saved their own lives. Len Fuller had been able to save both planes. Lionel Webber's plane had been lost, and this was something he felt very bad about as he led the investigation and salvage crew to the crash site. What both men had in common was they'd spoken to the newspapers. But it wasn't only Len and Lionel who'd made themselves available to the press. Trainee Jack Hewson had been photographed in his Aubrey hospital bed. He'd given a detailed account to the Border Morning Mail of what it had been like in his crushed Aggie beneath Len Fuller's plane. A sample quote of the paper's reporting makes it clear they'd done an interview. Quote, He opened the throttle wide and pulled back the stick, giving the machine a chance to keep flying. He saw Fuller wave to him and he took it as a sign to jump. With great difficulty in the tearing wind, he scrambled to the back of the wing and dived off somehow. An airboard court of inquiry was opened on the 1st of October. This was to officially look into both the Brocklesby and the Blue Mountains crashes. Were the pilots, Len Fuller and Lionel Webber, at fault? That would be one of the central questions when the court sat and heard evidence from these men. In the meantime, for what it was worth, the Border Morning Mail had already delivered its verdict on Len Fuller. He had, it said, done more than just save the planes and save the town of Brocklesby. Quote, He opened the book of adventure at a page that every young man with the urge to do great things in life will thrill to reading. 
so Australia puts its hands together to applaud Fuller, the adventurer. The paper went on. It goes to show, too, how near the skin of the average man lies the spirit of accomplishment, how the moment produces the man in this age of rapid movement and how tough the fibre and steady nerve of the modern flying man. Again, this could be the stuff of great morale-boosting propaganda. But the Border Morning Mail soberly acknowledged that the RAAF, like other air forces, kept their lips zipped about a lot of things. Quote, of necessity, practically the whole of the glory of the flying man of the world in this war must remain undisclosed. It is a pity we are not told more of their achievements. That newspaper certainly did everything in its power to keep the story alive. Its follow-up coverage included more photos of the interlocked planes, and a photo of Brocklesby hotel keeper Mr Egan holding the Aggie aerial that had nearly speared him. The newsreel of the incident had vivid footage of the planes in the paddock. You can see it on YouTube, but here's a taste. Now meet pilot Fuller, a young aviator who brought off an amazing exploit that has aroused worldwide interest and admiration. He landed those two planes together after a mid-air collision. Yet the people of Brocklesby believed that there should be something more permanent than newsreels and newspapers to commemorate what had happened in their town. So said Councillor J.E. Jolbert, President of Hume Shire, who argued there should be a memorial erected, in Brocklesby itself, rather than out in the paddock. He told Wagga's Daily Advertiser, quote, Rather than a stereotyped stone monument, I would like to see something symbolising the courage, resource and spirit of adventure of youth, something with an aesthetic appeal to it. He said he'd raise the issue at the next council meeting. Support for a monument grew, though others wanted it built at the landing spot. The council directed its engineer to mark out the precise place that the planes had come down in the paddock. Mr T. Murphy, who owned the land, said he was happy to donate this part of his property. An alderman named Bell said the council should be able to raise £20 to, quote, keep the event in the forefront of aviation history. Councillor Smith agreed. In America, he said, they would have left the planes just as they were and placed a roof over them. Councillor Smith said the only suitable thing to do would be to build two skeleton machines of the same dimensions and colour on the site. Councillor Smith and Councillor Bell moved a motion that was carried by the council. They were going to ask the Air Minister, Mr Arthur Fadden, to what extent his government would cooperate to commemorate what was clearly the eighth wonder of the world. But now, Councillor Jelbart, who'd been the first to raise the monument idea, got cold feet. He said, steady on. We should wait. Wait until the Air Board announced its findings. Alderman Jelbart and two fellow councillors said that if Len Fuller was shown to have been careless, then there should be no monument. Clearly at home, sitting on a fence, he said, quote, While I admire the skill and coolness of the pilot in bringing the machine safely to land, I think any action should be deferred for the time being. All of this would have been mighty familiar to Len Fuller's dad. Twenty years earlier, as a Cootamundra councillor, he'd seen what a rigmarole it could be to plan, fund and build a soldier's memorial. But one man was happy to act fast. This was George Mills, a former Great War fighter pilot turned dentist turned manager of the company that made Dominion Parachutes. On the 4th of October, he announced the formation of the Roo Club. This club would be exclusively for men who'd saved their lives in emergency bailouts using Dominion parachutes. The foundation members would be Ian Sinclair, Jack Hewson, Hugh Fraser and Lionel Webber. Each man would be awarded a plaque and a gold tie pin in the shape of a kangaroo. This was Australia's most exclusive club. Money, fame, social status, family background, none of that counted. You had to bail out to get in. Even Len Fuller wasn't a member. Not to worry though, he was going to be celebrated by the people of Brocklesby with a dinner at the end of October, where he'd be the guest of honour. Before that, on the 13th of the month, Len appeared before the Air Force Court of Inquiry at Wagga Wagga 
He was questioned about the accident, but also about talking to the Sun's reporter against regulations. As the Daily Telegraph reported, quote, If Fuller were disciplined because of the interview, it would be the first time the RAAF had taken action for this offence. That same day, pilot officer Lionel Webber appeared before the court to explain his actions during the crash in the Blue Mountains. At the end of the day, the Daily Telegraph's reporter asked Air Commander Cole whether Len Fuller and Lionel Webber had been disciplined. He replied, quote, I have nothing whatever to say about that. Good show, not talking to the press and all of that. Which made it ironic that another unidentified Air Force officer elaborated to the paper on this very point. Quote, RAAF regulations make it a very definite offence to talk to newspaper reporters. We have expected a tightening up of these regulations for some time. The initial report on the Brocklesby incident, which is found in the RAAF's Avro Anson crash investigation files, reads simply, Nature of accident, collision in air. Probable cause, obscure. Looking at other reports of Aggie crashes is to see the same probable cause, obscure, often listed. But courts of inquiry didn't hesitate to blame pilots if they believed they'd been at fault. They weren't to find fault with Len Fuller for the crash. Nor was Lionel Webber blamed for his. Yet for talking to reporters, Len Fuller was to be disciplined. He was confined to barracks for two weeks and he was to forfeit a week's pay. His general conduct sheet, found in his file at the National Archives of Australia, gives the official reason for this punishment. Quote, Neglecting to obey Airboard Order N3245C in that he, without due authorization, communicated to the press service information, thereby causing an article to appear in the Sun newspaper dated Tuesday 1st of October 1940. There's no mention of Len willfully disobeying a direct order. What made things stranger was that, at this same time, it was reported that Len's gallantry was to be recognised. But even in this, the Air Minister and his RAAF minions seemed to be in two minds. As Wagger's Daily Advertiser reported, The Minister for the Air said he knew that Fuller had been recommended for a decoration, but as he had not yet received a recommendation, he could not say what the decoration was. It is known that the authorities take a serious view of singling out a particular man from any squadron for publicity, claiming that it is detrimental to discipline. Mr. Fadden's explanation only made things murkier. He said, quote, Fuller is not being punished only for talking to the press. Other factors enter into it. I will probably give further information in the next few days after examining the papers. Neither Jack Hewson nor Lionel Webber, who'd both also spoken to reporters at length, were punished. Had they been authorised to speak? Given how slowly the RAAF brass moved on anything, this seems unlikely, particularly before the airboard inquiry had been completed. The RAAF supposedly objected to personnel being publicly singled out by punishing Len Fuller and not Jack Hewson and Lionel Webber, this was exactly what they were doing to him. Maybe the reason was in those other factors that Air Minister Mr Fadden had said he'd probably explain. Yet he reneged on this when he was bumped up to the Treasury portfolio. On the 18th of October, Mr Fadden told the press, I have no information to give, I will leave that to my successor. The Cootamundra Herald reported, quote, Mr. Fadden refused to be pressed further on the matter. It is believed that Mr. Fadden may be again appointed Minister for Air, and in that case, it is believed that Fuller's case will be sympathetically dealt with. It is believed that he, that was Mr. Fadden, holds the view that many Victoria Cross winners must have disobeyed orders. Mr. Fadden's successor was to be Harold Holt who'd been recalled to Cabinet from the Army to help fill the holes in leadership left by the Canberra air disaster. But before Mr Holt took over, Mr Fadden's supposed sympathy didn't extend to him going to bat for Len Fuller when the Air Force refused to allow Len to be guest of honour at the event the Brocklesby townspeople had planned. 
If the mid-air miracle had happened in the United States, the two planes would likely have been left in situ and become a morale-boosting tourist attraction. In America, it's also likely that Len Fuller would have met the president, had medals pinned on his chest, and become a poster boy for recruiting and fundraising as he made his way through the rest of his training to become a fully-fledged fighter or bomber pilot. Certainly, in Australia, despite the RAAF's best efforts, Len Fuller was popular enough to fit this propaganda bill. He was so famous that, at the height of the publicity, he caused a big stir when he walked into Prince's Dance Restaurant in Sydney on a Saturday night. Smith's Weekly had the story. Women completely ignored their partners to get a good eyeful of the gallant young man and fell over one another to have a dance with him. As the evening wore on and glasses clinked, the joymakers became more and more conscious of the air ace honouring them with his presence. Even the orchestra got all hotted up and insisted on buying him champagne, a very rare honour indeed. The crowd reached its zenith of hero worship by rendering for he's a jolly good fellow and letting out loud cheers. The young fellow responded in just the way you'd expect of a dinkum true blue Aussie hero who didn't have any tickets on himself, Smith reported. The brave young man took it all very modestly, and the crowd liked him all the more for that. Smith's then dropped the punchline. Most interesting part of the story is that, while all this was going on, aircraftsman LG Fuller was tucked in his bed at his RAAF camp, Wagga. See, the pickerback hero at Prince's had been some other RAAF trainee who'd been mistaken for Len Fuller, and, fair enough, he'd gone along with it for a laugh, the love of the ladies, and lashings of free bubbly. This story, funnier though it was, underlined the point. The government and the Air Force remained blind to the opportunity they'd been given. Political and military men who reveled in such rigid thinking and who wrapped themselves in red tape were then known as brass hats. They were also nicknamed blimps, after the pompous cartoon character Colonel Blimp. In an upcoming episode, we're going to take a deep dive into Australian blimpism during the desperate months of World War II. Was Arthur Fadden a blimp? During World War I, he'd been rejected as unfit for service and spent the war years working as a clerk in Mackay. This was no fault of his own. But it's safe to say that his Air Ministry predecessor, World War I pilot hero James Fairburn, who'd been killed in the Canberra air crash, would likely have loved Len Fuller and seen his propaganda value. In what must have been one of his last decisions as Air Minister, Mr Fadden doubled down, as the Border Morning Mail reported on the 9th of November. Quote, The department controlled by the Minister for Air will not contribute towards the cost of a monument to commemorate the successful landing of the two interlocked aircraft at Brocklesby recently. Hume Councillor Mr Bell reckoned they should go ahead with one anyway. He said if they didn't, the event would be forgotten. Brocklesby people would not forget, but it was going to be a very, very long time before a monument became a reality. On the 18th of November 1940, Len Fuller finished training at Wagga. He and the other successful pilot trainees were now transferred to the number two embarkation depot at Bradfield Park in Sydney. There, they got final dental and medical checks, received and packed their equipment, and filled out their wills. Len and his comrades also officially graduated and received their ranks. Half were to become pilot officers. But Len was in the other half, who became sergeant pilots. Perhaps he didn't have the same sort of right stuff as the top half of the class. Perhaps it was a further unofficial punishment for his unofficial transgressions. Regardless, in a few weeks, Len Fuller would finally embark and go off to fight, as would his mates. In that first intake of trainee pilots under the Empire Air Scheme, 34 men had graduated. 12 wouldn't live to see the end of the war. 
I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to RAAF hero Len Fuller, Part 2, The Mid-Air Miracle. The third and final instalment, Blood Moon and the Setting of the Sun, will be released on the 6th of November. But if you're an Apple or Patreon supporter, you can hear the rest of the story early and ad-free. As a supporter, you'll get every episode early and without ads, which means you can binge entire multi-part stories without interruption and well ahead of their general public release. As a supporter, you'll also get exclusive bonus episodes, and the next one is going to delve deep into the history of White Death, that 1936 shark exploitation movie that starred poor John Weston. Through no fault of his own, John's only film might well be the worst Australian movie ever made. And the reasons why it failed are fascinating and very funny. So if you do want more Forgotten Australia, why not use the free trial offered by Apple and by Patreon? This free trial actually lets you download all the currently available early and bonus episodes. You can try before you buy and it's easy to cancel. But if you do like what you hear and you'd like to hear more, remaining a supporter is only going to cost you about the same as a cup of coffee per month. Supporting Forgotten Australia helps me ensure that I can pay for access to research materials, which includes books, archival files, journal articles and trips to locations and state libraries. Basically anything that helps me to bring the fullest story to you. Supporters also help me to pay for the music and sound effects you hear in each episode. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting.